This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Okay, so a couple of weeks ago, we began a new series on the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew uh, chapters 5 through 7, and we're calling this series A New Way of Life, because what's happening in the Sermon on the Mount is that, that Jesus is inviting us into a whole new way of being in the world. He, he's inviting us into a, a way of, of life that produces the, the flourishing life to the full that God intends us for us to, to have. So this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, if you'll turn there, and we're going to look at, um, at verses 13 through 16, and we're talking today about impacting others for the glory of God. Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to look at just four verses today, verses 13 through 16. So let's stand together as we look at, at, at God's word. Matthew 5. And beginning with verse 13, what does, it, what does it mean for God's people to be salt and light? It's about impact. Impacting others for the glory of God. What does Jesus say? You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. You can be seated. Let's pray. And so, Father, as we, we come before your, your word now, we, we pray that, that, that your Holy Spirit would, would speak to us, that you would illumine our, our minds and our hearts, that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see who Jesus is and that you would open our minds and hearts to, to understand what it means to be your people in this world, what it means to be people of impact for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. It was really interesting watching the, the college football national championship game on Monday night and to think about the journey of the two coaches that were in this game because um, both of these guys were very unlikely prospects to, to make the impact that they have made on their school's football programs. 
Uh, Dabo Sweeney, Clemson's coach, was, was raised in really humble circumstances, country boy from central Alabama, and he wasn't even that much of a standout high school football player. He was a, a walk-on at the University of Alabama. He didn't go there with a football scholarship. And even when he, he got the, the head coaching job at Clemson, the only reason that he got the job is because the head coach was fired. And so he stepped in as, as sort of an, an interim head coach. And, and then when he was given the, the permanent job, people still didn't know who he was. I mean, who is this guy with a weird name, Dabo, Dabo, you know, who, who is this guy? And the impact that he's had on Clemson's football team is just nothing short of miraculous. Ed Orgeron, LSU's coach, was raised in a a poor Cajun family in South Louisiana. And, and he had gone through all kinds of different things in his, in his coaching journey. He failed as a head coach at, at Ole Miss. And then he was, like Dabo Sweeney, he was the, the interim head coach at the University of Southern California. And he was beloved by his players. He did a great job there, uh, but he didn't get the job as head coach there because a lot of that school's boosters didn't, they didn't think a guy with this kind of you know, gravelly voice and Cajun accent would, would fit in at, at USC. They're, they're sorry they didn't make that move uh, now. But, but even, even at LSU, which is right in the area where he was raised, he wasn't in line to get the head coaching position. The only reason that he got the job is because the, the guy that they really wanted wasn't a available. But what an incredible impact uh, he, he has had on that, that program. Both of those guys, just so unlikely, unlikely, nobody would have thought that either of those men would have had that kind of an impact. And you know, when you look at the, the Beatitudes, which we've been looking at for the past couple of weeks, the people that Jesus is describing in the Beatitudes. They're not the kinds of people that you think would be world changers, that you would think would, would really make a huge impact on this world. No, the, the celebrities, the, the rich, the powerful, the beautiful, the famous, those are the kinds of people that we think are going to really impact the world. But Jesus says no. No, the people who are really going to be world changers are the poor in spirit, the merciful, the humble, the peacemakers, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those are going to be the ultimate impact players in this world, the people who are willing to be salt and light for God's glory. That's what Jesus is calling us to today. So what does he mean there when he, when he calls us to be salt and light? It's about impact. Impacting others for the glory of, of God. Let's talk, first of all, this morning about 
what it means to be salting the earth. Jesus says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything, but it be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, Jesus uses a metaphor here that, that anybody in that crowd could understand. Just common, everyday salt. <laughs> but for people in the first century that Jesus was talking to, it, salt was much more of, of a precious commodity to them than it is to us. For us, salt is primarily about taste. But remember, in the first century, there is no refrigeration. <laughs> and so salt was the, the main way that they would preserve food to keep it from, from rotting. And Jesus says here to his followers, to his followers that were on that hillside in the first century and to his followers today, to you and me, he says, you are the salt of the earth. And the pronoun there, uh, you, is emphatic. In other words, it has the meaning, you and you only are the salt of the earth. In other words, if, if, if believers are not being the salt of the earth, then the world is going to rot. And let's make it even more personal. If, if you are not being salt to the people in your life, within your sphere of influence, there's going to be a decline. I love that Christmas movie. It's, it's a wonderful life where, you know, Jimmy Stewart plays this, this guy, George Bailey, who's depressed and he thinks his life, you know, really doesn't have any meaning. And this, this angel shows him, hey, this is what your family, this is what your hometown would have been like had you not been here. And, and just all of kind of the rottenness that would, have, that would have taken over. You know, one salty life for Christ makes a huge difference in the lives of people. But what if the salt loses its, its, its saltiness, its, its, its taste? And the Greek word here um, for taste or, or saltiness is, is defiled. What if the salt is defiled? And what that means is, it, what if the salt is, becomes impure? Now, people in the first century especially were familiar with what Jesus was talking about because a lot of times what would happen was that their salt would get mixed up with other stuff. It would get mixed up with, you know, with sand or dirt or whatever. And when that happened, then the, the salt would lose its, its effectiveness in, in preserving or in taste. What if, what if as believers... We, we lose our saltiness. We, we lose our distinctiveness. What if we become so watered down and contaminated by the things of the world that we're not any different from the world? Well, then we can't impact the world. The witness of the, of, of the church is destroyed when our faith gets watered down 
And when we, become, when we become like the world, then we can't make a difference in the world. In other words, we have, to, we have to be different to make a difference in the world. Now, now listen, especially in America and in Western Europe and you know, cultures like Australia or whatever, Western cultures, there is already and there will be even more pressure in the future for the church, for the lines of distinction between the church and the world to be more and more blurred, especially when it comes to issues like sexuality and gay marriage and things like that. There's going to be a ton of pressure for the church just to kind of cave in and for the lines of distinction to be blurred and for us to just kind of adopt the world's ways. Let me tell you, the church can never impact this world if we're not distinct. You see, the, the pressure is gonna be, oh, you, know, you guys don't wanna get out on a limb. You don't wanna really be too different if we're not different we will not be able to make a difference. John Stott says this, the sermon, meaning the Sermon on the Mount, is built on the assumption that Christians are different and it issues a call to us to be different. Probably the greatest tragedy of the church throughout history has been its constant tendency to conform to the prevailing culture instead of developing a Christian counterculture. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, if Christians become assimilated to non-Christians and contaminated by the impurities of the world, they lose their influence. The influence of Christians in and on society depends on their being distinct, not identical. When the church is different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. This fall, I read a a great book by a New Testament scholar, Larry Hurtado, who just went home to be with the Lord a few months ago. But Dr. Hurtado was, was one of the greatest scholars in the world on sort of what the, what the first century world was like, the, the, the background of the, the New Testament. And he, one of his greatest books is called Destroyer of the Gods, and it's subtitled Early Christian Distinctiveness in the Roman world. I want to tell you, Christians stood out. (laughs) They were very, very distinct in the Roman world. Now, the earliest Christians were Jewish, of course, and they were distinct as well because they, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and so that certainly set them apart from other Jews. But, but when these Gentiles from the pagan world started to, to come to Christ, they, they, were, they, could, they, could, they, they stood out in all kinds of ways. Listen, if you were, if you were a Christian, uh, came from a, a, a Gentile background somewhere in the Greco-Roman world and you know, the first few centuries of the church, um, you would have been raised in a, a polytheistic family you would have been raised in a family where they worship many, many gods, okay? The family that you grew up in would have had 
household gods that they worshiped as a family. And they, they thought that these, these household gods like, like protected, their, protected their home, you know, protected their household, gave blessing to their household. Well, what would happen was that, you know, these people would come to faith in Christ and, and coming to faith in Christ meant turning away from these idols. So how do you think mom and dad felt about, you know, their kid not worshiping the household gods anymore? <laughs> or their grandparents who maybe, maybe live with them? How do they feel about this person who's come to faith in Christ? They're not honoring the household gods anymore. That, that could expose us to danger. You know, or in, even in your job, you know, you would have probably been a member of a guild. You know, let's say you were a craftsman or something. You would have been a member of like a trade guild that had its own gods that they worshiped and revered. They would have ceremonies to honor the God of their guild. And suddenly this, this believer's not showing up for, for, for idol worship anymore. It gets you persecuted. You know, each city had their own gods. There would be civic ceremonies where the god of that town or city was, was worshipped. So the Christians couldn't be a part of that anymore. They turned away from idols. It, on and on it went. And so they were incredibly persecuted. They were persecuted because they stood, they were so distinct because of their refusal to worship idols. Uh, and that was just only one of the ways that they were distinct. They were distinct in, 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 in many ways. But it got them persecuted, brutally persecuted in the first three centuries of the church. Now listen, but what was happening at the same time in the first three centuries of the church? Hurtado estimates that in, in 100 AD, so probably like you know 70 years after the resurrection of Christ, there were probably seven to 10,000 Christians in the world. In 200 AD, there were probably about 200,000 Christians. And then in 300 AD, there were probably five to seven million. And this growth of the church took place in the midst of incredible persecution. Why? For the same reason that Christianity is growing leaps and bounds in places like Iran and China today. Because when you're willing to put yourself out there and be different and be distinct, then yes, you're going to be persecuted, but others are going to be attracted to the light that you shine. And that's where we're going next. Because we're called to be not, not just different in the things that we turn from, like idol worship and, and immorality, but different in the things that we embrace. We're to be light, lighting the world. Let's look at verse 14. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, this concept of, of God's people as light is coming from the Old Testament. Jesus loved the book of Isaiah. 
And he saw particularly how in his own life and ministry, chapters 40 through 66 of Isaiah were, were, were being fulfilled. And so in those chapters of Isaiah, you see stuff like this. This is Isaiah 42, 6. I am the Lord. I have called you for a righteous purpose and I will hold you by your hand. I will watch over you and I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the nations, plural. And so Jesus' purpose was not just to be a light to, to one nation, to one people, but to the nations, to all the peoples. Again, Isaiah chapter 49 and, and, and verse 6. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And so when we think about being light, we think about the fact that Jesus is the, the, the light of the world, which he says in, in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. First of all, he's drawing from this Old Testament background in Isaiah, but what you need to understand is that these passages in Isaiah are about missions. They are, are about God's global purposes for the light of Christ to shine to the nations, that his salvation would be known to the ends of the earth. We have a missionary God and we are called to be a missionary people. Now, Jesus in verses 14 through 16 uses three images to capture how we are to shine as his people. A city on a hill, a lamp on a stand, and good works that point to God. First of all, we're called to be a, a city on a hill. Now let's look at verse 14 again. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. Most of the people that were on that hillside listening to the Sermon on the Mount that day lived in the city of Capernaum. Just down below them where they were situated right on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. That's where most of them would have lived. At night... If you're in Capernaum, you can, you can look along the shore of the Sea of Galilee and you can see the lights of the city of Tiberias, which is situated on a hill. I remember the first time that I went to Tiberias and we were checking into the hotel. I'm like, wow, this is like perched up on a hill, right? And so when you're in Capernaum at night, you can look and you can see that that city situated up on a, a up on a up on a hill. Um, now, this image of a city on a hill has been used in some famous speeches in American history. The Puritans used this image. The the Puritan John Winthrop 
in a, in a speech that he, he gave on March 21st, 1630, just before the pilgrims embarked to come on the ship to come over to the new world. Um, he, gave, he gave a talk in which he used this image that they were to be a, a city on a hill, like a, 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 beacon, a beacon in the new world for the rest of the world. President Reagan used the image of a city on a hill twice. He used it the first time in a speech that he gave called A Vision for America on November 3rd, 1980. It was the eve of the 1980 presidential election. And then he used it again in his farewell address to the nation on January 11th, 1989. And what Reagan was saying was that he wanted America to, to be like a, a beacon of hope and freedom to the rest of the world. It's a powerful image. And you can understand why a president certainly would, would want to, uh, to, 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 use, to use that. And obviously we do want our nation to be uh, a city on a hill and to be kind of like a, a beacon of hope and freedom for the rest of the, of, of the world. But we need to understand that when Jesus is, is, is saying this, when he talks about being a city on a hill, Jesus originally was not talking about a nation. He's <laughs> not talking about a political entity, a nation state. Jesus is talking about the church. God's people are to be a city on a hill. We are not to be a city that's nestled down and hidden in a valley. We're to be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. The world needs to see our light. And then he says that the city on a hill cannot be hidden. Tim Keller was for many years the, the pastor of Redeemer Church in New York City. And, and one of the things that he would always uh, tell the, the the people in his church uh, these these Christians living living in a very secular city of New York. One of, one of the things that Tim Keller would always tell his his people was just just don't hide your faith. <laughs> just be who you are. Just simply simply don't hide your faith in Christ. You know, the, the world wants us to kind of like keep that part. You just keep, you keep all that to yourself. You know, just don't, we don't talk about stuff like that. It's just kind of like your own personal private thing. No, no, it can't be that way. Listen, if we're ashamed of Christ, then it, it means that we probably don't even know him. Look at what Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter, chapter 10 and verses 32 and 33. Therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before others, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Where to be a city on a hill? Second, a lamp on a stand. Verse 15. Jesus says, 
No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, (laughs) but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. I mean, try putting a lamp on the floor sometime. It's not gonna give out much light. Put a box on top of it. It's gonna give even less. Now, you know, today, if we were to do that, we've got like 10 other lights that we can flick switches and, you know, turn on the overhead or, or, or whatever. In the first century, first of all, there's no electricity. Second, in the average home, it was, it was one room and many of them didn't even have windows. And so uh, the only light that they had would be like a little oil lamp. And so they would put it in a very prominent place so that it would shine throughout the room to light up the darkness. As believers... We're called to to light up the the darkness of this world. Philippians chapter two and verse 15. The apostle Paul says that believers, that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world. Paul, Paul here is picturing this fallen world in its darkness. And he's saying that the people of God are called to shine out against the, the blackness of, of the, the night of this, of this culture that we're living in, this crooked and perverted generation. We're to, we're, we're to be a, a, a star shining out, right? That, 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 that points people to the truth, to the light. A lamp on a stand. Third, good works that point to God. Verse 16, Jesus says in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Now sometimes, we, we tend to diminish the importance of, of, of good works because we're not saved by works. But you know what? We certainly are saved for good works. Ephesians chapter two and verses eight through 10. Paul says, for you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So good works are certainly not the root of faith, but they are absolutely the fruit of faith. We're not saved by good works, but by grace through faith in Christ alone, but we are saved for good works. What kind of good works are we saved for? You know, it begins with the everyday stuff. It begins with stuff as, as simple as, as kindness. I love what Pastor Steve Gaines says. Steve Gaines says, want to be delightfully different? Be kind. <laughs> be kind. It will stand out in this world, which is often unkind. You know, it, it begins with, with, with ordinary kindness, with, with, with kind words and kind actions, encouraging 
words and, and actions that encourage, loving words, loving actions. It means, it means serving other, putting others first and serving in a way that stands out. I had to go get like a big catering order for our school's homecoming last night at Chick-fil-A and they were just super busy and it was just, it was crazy in there. But there was, there was this young woman working there and she had so, she was just trying to get my order together. I want to tell you, she went the extra mile. It's like, hey, let me, let me help you take all this out. And I mean, she just, that kind of thing stands out, right? It's different. It's distinct. That's, that's who we're called to be as God's people. You know, we don't often think about telling other people about Jesus as a good work, but it is. It is, right? Good works include our lives and our lips. And what better, what more, what better way could we ever help people than to tell them the good news of what Jesus has done for them? Witnessing is just simply loving people. It's, it's loving people and seeking to help them understand the most important knowledge and the best news that they could ever hear. Just this week, I was reading in kind of my, my one-year Bible reading plan, and I was in the 16th chapter of, of Acts, and I was just struck by the dream that the Apostle Paul has one night. He, ha- he has this dream of this, this guy in Macedonia, which was like a, a totally unevangelized place at that point. And in this dream, this Macedonian man is pleading with Paul, come over to Macedonia and help us. Help us. Because they were spiritually dark. They'd never heard the good news of Jesus. The light of Christ had never shown there. You know, when you, when you fly over Korea, there's no doubt about when you're flying over North Korea and South Korea. <laughs> because South Korea is lit up. It's a modern society. You know, the, the, at night, the cities are just glowing. They're lit up. You fly over North Korea, it is dark. But it is dark in a much more significant way. It is spiritually dark. And there are so many places on this earth that are just like that, where the light of Christ has not shown. Why do we talk so much about missions? Why do we give? Why do we go? Why do we pray for the nations? Because the vision of God is for the light to shine everywhere to all peoples. But missions begins with the people that are right around you every day. Because I'm telling you, it's a dark place. It's a dark place right here, right in our city, right in the 757, right around us every day. We are around people every day that are in darkness. They're hurting. They're confused. There's pain. There's brokenness. And they may disguise it. 
with a fake smile or they may try to mask it with prosperity or you know with what with or, or whatever but 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 this 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 world is a hurting place we are around people you are around people every day that there's just there is a deep darkness within and if and if you're not the light of the world who is going to be god has put each of us in our in our places of influence you know in our schools in our jobs in our neighborhoods in our families God has sovereignly put us in those places. And Jesus says, you and you only are the salt of the earth. You and you only are the light of the world. If God's people are not going to be that, who is? There's not going to be any. And so this, this mission of impact begins in everyday life where God has placed us. And, and why do we, why do we want to do that? It's for his glory, right? Look at verse 16 again. Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that, what? So that they may see your good works and think that you're a great person? No. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is another reason why we have to tell people about Jesus and identify ourselves as believers, as people who belong to him, because the goal is not for people just to think that you're, you're a great guy or you know, a, a great woman. That's not it. That's self-glorification. What we're to be about is God-glorification. You know, we want everything that we do and say to point to who God is so that God gets the glory and so that in coming to worship and glorify God, people will have the joy of knowing him. Let's pray together. Lord, make us salt and light. Make us people of impact. Help us to wake up each day on a mission to impact others for the glory of God. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray, amen. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, 
God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.